The Devil Within, the hit true crime podcast, is back with a terrifying journey into the mind of a madman. In the 1970s, New York City had it all. Hip-hop, punk rock, and the Son of Sam. The Devil Within, a season in hell, is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Do you want to listen ad-free? You can do that now by joining our Patreon or hitting that subscription button on Apple Podcast. Spotify listeners, we've got you too. All you got to do is in your Spotify app, search The Murder Diaries ad-free. Welcome to The Murder Diaries. I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. She was a young and brilliant undergrad attending one of the country's top Ivy League schools. She was loved by all who knew her. She spoke four languages and tutored inner city kids. Then one night, she was murdered while walking across campus, brutally stabbed 17 times. She was left to die on the side of the road. That was December 4th, 1998. Now, 25 years later, her murder is still unsolved. Her killer remains free. Her name is Suzanne Joven, and this is her story. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. Suzanne Nuella Joven was born in Germany to American parents on January 26, 1977. She was the oldest of two daughters. Her parents, Thomas and Donna Joven, were molecular and cellular biologists from the U.S. working at the Max Planck Institute for Biophysical Chemistry in Germany. Her younger sister, Rebecca, was her best friend. She was also close to Ellen and Diana, her two older half-sisters from her father's previous marriage. Suzanne grew up in a beautiful 14th-century Bavarian castle in Göttingen, a medieval town in the western part of Germany. Thomas says that Suzanne was raised, quote, as an American in Germany, with all that implies. A gifted linguist as a child, she spoke fluent English and German. She started learning Latin in fifth grade and French in seventh. She was also musically gifted. She played the piano and the cello. Before her 13th birthday, Suzanne had traveled throughout Europe and visited her grandparents at their home in Mexico. In 1995, Suzanne arrived in New Haven, Connecticut. It was her first time in the U.S., and she was there in order to attend Yale University, her mom's alma mater. She loved Yale from the moment she stepped foot on campus. A Vanity Fair article written about Suzanne describes her as extraordinary, even among Yale's overachievers. She spoke four languages, sang in the Bach Society Orchestra, co-founded Yale's German club, and tutored underprivileged children. By 1998, Suzanne was a senior at Yale, double majoring in international studies and political science. She was busy applying to graduate schools in the diplomatic field. Also at this time, Suzanne was the student director of Best Buddies. She'd been a member already since her freshman year. Best Buddies is an international volunteer program that seeks to enhance the lives of mentally disadvantaged adults from the New Haven community by providing one-to-one friendships with Yale students. By all accounts, Suzanne was a wonderful young woman and an outstanding student. She was greatly admired as a person with a social conscience who gave much of herself as a volunteer assisting people less fortunate than herself. 
David Bach, a fellow Yale classmate and friend, said Suzanne was full of exciting contradictions. She was extremely serious academically, but also just a great person to have fun and hang out with. She was very traditional and stylish and feminine, but also very rebellious and liberal. Suzanne's parents told Vanity Fair, we were very proud of Suzanne and admired her greatly. She suffered no fools and could identify them with ease. She was 5'5", 125 pounds, and surprisingly strong for her size. She jogged, played squash, snow skied, and attended step aerobics classes. In fact, friends told Vanity Fair whoever killed Suzanne must have been very strong or someone who knew what they were doing. In the late afternoon of December 4th, 1998, 21-year-old Suzanne turned in a draft of her senior essay to her advisor, James Vandell, at his Brewster Hall office. She only had the conclusion left to finish. Her essay focused on Osama bin Laden and the terrorist threat to U.S. security, in which she examined the terrorist's already prominent organization. It's hard to say all that without acknowledging the fact that this is about three years before 9-11. James is quoted as saying she had a few more hours of work to go. James was himself a 1982 Yale graduate. In addition to being her advisor, he was the instructor for her political science seminar, Strategy and Policy in the Conduct of War. After turning in her essay, Suzanne attended a holiday pizza-making party that she was in charge of for Best Buddies. The party started around 6 p.m. at Trinity Lutheran Church. Suzanne borrowed a station wagon from the Yale carpool to transport some of the Best Buddies to and from the party. After helping to clean up, Suzanne returned the vehicle to the parking lot on Edgewood Avenue and walked home to her apartment at 256 Park Street. Between 8.30 and 8.50 p.m., a group of friends walked by Suzanne's apartment and waved to her from where she sat by the window. They invited her to the movies, but she declined, saying that she needed to work on her essay. Remember, she still had a few more hours of work to go. At 9.02 p.m., Suzanne emailed a classmate, apologizing for not returning her phone call. She said she had her GRE study materials, but had loaned them to someone else. Suzanne said she would retrieve the materials and leave them in her foyer where she could pick them up. In case she wasn't home when she stopped by to pick up the materials, Suzanne shared the code to her apartment building. This person that she was emailing has never publicly been identified. And the person that she needed to retrieve the GRE materials from, they've never been identified, period. Around 9.20 p.m., another Yale student, Peter, ran into Suzanne walking toward the Yale carpool where she was to return the keys to the vehicle she had borrowed. Suzanne and Peter were friends, but not very close. Peter says she did not mention plans to go anywhere or do anything afterward. She just said that she was very, very tired and that she was looking forward to getting a lot of sleep. About 9.25 p.m., another student returning from a hockey game saw Suzanne walking on College Street towards Elm Street, coming from the direction of Phelps Gate on the Yale campus. This person is believed to be the last person to see Suzanne alive. The student later told police that she saw a Hispanic or Black male in a hooded sweatshirt walking north. Behind him, also walking north, was Suzanne. And walking in that same northern direction, several paces behind her, was, quote, a blonde man with glasses, a white guy dressed nicely. At 9.58 p.m., two people out walking and admiring the Christmas decorations dialed 911 to report that a woman lay bleeding at the corner of Edge Hill and East Rock. 
This is nearly two miles from where Suzanne had last been seen. So how did she travel so far in such a short time? Police think she must have driven there. Friends are confident she would never get in the car with strangers. So then the question remains, who gave her a ride? The East Rock neighborhood where Suzanne was killed was a wealthy one, home to many of Yale's faculty members, in fact. Suzanne was viciously stabbed 17 times in the head, neck, back, and her throat had been slit. She was found face down, lying in a grassy patch adjacent to the sidewalk. She was wearing low-cut hiking boots, jeans, a maroon fleece, a watch, and earrings. If how she was found and what happened to her weren't cruel enough, the tip of the knife that had been used to murder her was lodged in her skull. The knife has never been found, but investigators believe it had a four to five inch non-serrated carbon blade. There was also a Fresca bottle on the ground near her. Test results later showed the bottle had Suzanne's fingerprints on it, along with a partial palm print from an unidentified person. There were no signs of sexual assault, and the brutal nature of the stabbing suggested robbery was likely not the motive either. On top of that, a crumpled dollar bill was in her pocket, and her wallet was later found in her apartment. Suzanne was the 14th person murdered in New Haven in 1998. This marked a considerably lower homicide count than the previous year. A resident near where Suzanne had been found said that the police knocked on her door just after 10 p.m. to say that there was a lady down. The resident looked out her door and saw Suzanne laying near the curb. That same resident later told Vanity Fair that Suzanne's body was next to a tree and her feet were almost in the street. She said it looked like Suzanne had been trying to crawl to a house for help, but never made it. And at 10.26 p.m., Suzanne was pronounced dead on arrival at Yale New Haven Hospital. The autopsy and police files have never been released, with investigators saying making them public might hinder the investigation. By midnight, police were searching Suzanne's apartment. They called every number listed on the wall near her phone. The fall semester had just ended, so a lot of her friends were out enjoying some freedom before the exams started. Suzanne's boyfriend, Roman, who was 22 at the time and an engineering student who she had been dating since her freshman year, was on a train returning from New York City. He had spent some time there with his parents who were visiting from Texas. Suzanne's freshman roommate, Amy, was the first to learn that she was dead. Amy was awakened around midnight by a call from the police. Another friend of Suzanne's said the police sent a car to get Amy and they took her to identify Suzanne's body. The police initially had told Amy that Suzanne had, quote, expired. She had no idea what was going on. Before she fully understood, she thought that Suzanne had gotten into a problem or something. Amy's friend that was with her had to tell her, Amy, she's dead. By noon the next day, the tragic news had spread. Flowers piled up at the gates of Davenport, Suzanne's residential college. Devastated, Students milled about the courtyard, sobbing. Police searched the sewers around where Suzanne had been found, looking for the murder weapon or any other clues, any evidence. Local treasure hunters brought their metal detectors and joined in the search. Police set up roadblocks and interviewed countless Yale students and faculty members. Test results showed that there was evidence of a male's DNA underneath Suzanne's fingernails. Suzanne's boyfriend and other men who knew her or had come in contact with her gave DNA samples. 
all of those samples tested negative as a match to the fingernail scrapings from Suzanne. Some DNA was found mixed with Suzanne's blood. Unfortunately, quote, scientists were unable to tell the nature of the cellular material that was found, in large part because the questioned DNA was mixed with a much greater quantity of Suzanne's own blood. A few days after the murder, police received an anonymous tip. A woman said she'd been driving at the time of Suzanne's murder and saw a man running on Whitney Avenue. This is just a block or two away from where Suzanne was killed. The woman said shortly before 10 p.m., a man ran up to her car window, briefly looked inside, then turned and ran into a churchyard. The man is said to have had a fierce expression on his face, but other than that, she didn't have more information on his looks and hadn't gotten that great of a look at him. Police received multiple tips that people heard a man and woman arguing in front of an apartment at 750 Whitney Avenue. Others reported hearing more arguing and screams at the intersection of East Rock and Edge Hill. A few said that as they approached the corner of East Rock and Edge Hill roads, a brown and tan van was seen stopped on that same road, right next to where Suzanne was found. Police believed that Suzanne was stabbed from behind. It appeared that she got out of a car before or after arguing with a man. It didn't look as if she tried to call for help or put up a fight. She didn't scrape her hands or seem to be running away. Vanity Fair said from the outset, it appeared that police believed Suzanne was murdered by a man, one whose motive was probably jealousy, desire, or anger. A friend of Suzanne said police talked to virtually every man she knew and asked if they had slept with her. The director of Best Buddies, Dawn, said that police never contacted her or anyone from her office. She went on to say that police waited several days before calling any of the people Suzanne drove home with from the pizza party. Shortly after the murder, renowned forensic expert Henry Lee volunteered to help New Haven police. Lee worked on the Nicole Brown Simpson and John Bonet Ramsey cases, among so many others. But police told him they didn't need his help because they believed an arrest would be made at any moment. This episode is brought to you by Thrive Market. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. And I use their on-site filters to suit my lifestyle needs. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks, low-sugar alternatives, or gluten-free pantry essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with a few clicks. If you know anything about me, non-toxic cleaning products are an essential item in my household. And I can find everything I need at Thrive Market. It makes it so easy. I don't have to run to three different stores to get them. I can make an order online and it's shipped to my door the next day. If you're me, you're using those filters to try and find those gluten-free alternatives. I do have autoimmune issues and unfortunately gluten is a pretty big trigger for me. So I love that with Thrive Market, I just click that filter and boom, there's all these delicious gluten-free options. And let's not forget, when you join Thrive Market, you're also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join and they give. Another really great thing about using Thrive for me is that one of my favorite grocery stores can be pretty pricey. And I was able to find a lot of those same things that I get there on Thrive and actually save some money. So definitely thank you to Thrive for saving me a little bit of money in the new year. Join us in saving with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash diaries for 30% off your order, plus a free $60 gift. 
That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash diaries. Thrivemarket.com slash diaries. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. New Haven police interviewed Suzanne's essay advisor, 38-year-old James, at his office on December 7th and spoke for about 10 to 15 minutes. At that time, law enforcement gave no indication that he was a suspect. But the next day, New Haven police interrogated James again. This time, the interrogation lasted several hours at the police station. There, they accused him of killing Suzanne. James, of course, denied this accusation. He told investigators that he worked in his office for most of the evening on December 4th. A friend stopped by around 6 p.m. to invite him to the movies, but James had turned him down, saying that he had too much work to do. He then reviewed Suzanne's essay and planned to provide feedback to her in the morning. He took a short break and walked up the street to watch part of the hockey game between Princeton and Yale. After that, he returned to his office, did a little more work, then went home for the evening. With his timeline, at the time of Suzanne's murder, James would have been alone in his apartment. Without asking for a lawyer, James gave investigators permission to search his apartment and read Jeep Wrangler. He offered to take a polygraph and give a blood sample, but investigators declined. James' attorney later would say that police told the media they searched James' apartment, but that never happened. On December 9th, the New Haven Register reported that a Yale educator was the lead suspect citing city and university resources close to the case, the headline read, Yale teacher grilled in killing. The subhead read, prime suspect lives near where the slain student was found, sources say. The article clearly didn't name James specifically, but it was clear who they were talking about. James was a lecturer, not a professor, which might explain why the article calls the suspect an educator. Also on the 9th, police told senior Yale officials James was their prime suspect. James later said not a single Yale official bothered to ask why or demand any evidence to support the accusation. James also said after his interview on December 8th, police never questioned him again, nor did they forward any more questions to his lawyer. Once James emerged as a suspect, the student who had seen Suzanne walking around at 9.25 p.m. with a Hispanic or Black man and a blonde man with glasses walking behind her came forward and told police that she'd seen James' picture on TV and he was definitely the blonde man with the glasses. Police also took the woman who had seen the man running on Whitney and Huntington to James's office. She said James was not the runner and police never contacted her again until 2008. More on that later. Yale released a statement on January 11th, 1999, that police said James was included in a pool of suspects. James said that by, quote, publicly branding me a suspect again, that caused immense and irreparable damage to the investigation and to my reputation and ended my career. After the murder, Yale did not renew James' teaching contract and canceled his classes for the spring 1999 semester. Yale felt his presence on campus would be too much of a distraction. It took him a year to find a new job, and he never worked at Yale again. 
He later sued Yale and the city of New Haven for unfairly naming him as a suspect. Vanity Fair said police assumed James and Suzanne had had an affair and that it went sour. But investigators never found any evidence to support this theory. Suzanne's friends and parents said that she was happily dating Roman and gave no indication that James was anything more than her advisor. Police asked several students if there had ever been rumors of James sleeping with the students. But everyone they spoke to said that there was, quote, never a hint of anything untoward. In fact, they said he'd never had problems of any kind with any students. James's attorney couldn't understand why police were so focused on his client. He told Vanity Fair, there was a witness who saw a car hightailing out from that area who spoke with the police. He described it as a small red car, and the police asked him 14 times if it was a big red Wrangler. And they showed him pictures of Jim, and he said that's absolutely not who was driving the car. New Haven police eventually took forensic expert Henry Lee up on his offer to analyze Suzanne's clothing and the Fresca bottle that was found near her body. He spent all of Christmas processing the evidence. Lee said he tried his best. Lee told News 8 that he didn't receive all of the evidence. Some of it had been sent to the FBI, and he went on to explain that evidence should always be sent to just one lab. In March of 1999, New Haven Police Chief Melvin Waring admitted the case had grown cold. Connecticut Governor John Rowland offered a $50,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Suzanne's killer. On graduation day in May of 1999, Yale awarded Suzanne a posthumous degree. She graduated cum laude with a distinction in both of her majors. She also won the Roosevelt L. Thompson Prize for her commitment to public service. In September 1999, James told The Current that he was innocent and that New Haven police had exhausted their expertise. He thought the FBI or state police should take over the investigation. By the end of February 2000, James was still the only suspect police had publicly named. On March 1st, 2000, ABC's 2020 featured Suzanne's story. They interviewed James, who said New Haven police had this notion that it was a crime of passion and we must have had a relationship. And did she attack me? Did she attack my manhood? Did we argue about the relationship? It's ridiculous. I had no relationship with this woman. We never argued. I never saw her outside of class. I don't even know where she lived. And here they are accusing me of murdering her. James said he didn't have any confidence in the integrity and credibility of the New Haven police. He said they continued to engage in this, quote, ridiculous speculation. He thought Suzanne's case was dead and feared her killer would never be caught. Now, according to James, he lost his life savings because of the accusations saying it doesn't escape me and will likely not escape me until the police arrest someone or withdraw their label of me as a suspect. Also in 2000, Yale University hired a man named Andy to investigate Suzanne's murder. Suzanne's parents had pressured Yale to hire their own outside investigators. Andy pulled in the big guns, asking a former commanding officer of NYPD's major crime squad to help him. Andy and the former commanding officer interviewed James for several hours. According to Andy, he was fully cooperative with us and he did everything in the world to cooperate with police. He felt he was done wrong. Andy said when James agreed to be questioned by New Haven detectives four days after Suzanne's murder, he answered their questions for hours. James offered to take a lie detector test and invited police to search his home and Jeep. James said that Andy and the former commanding officer from NYPD interviewed him three different times for a total of six hours. 
They asked James to provide a DNA sample, which he did. The DNA was tested against the DNA found from under Suzanne's fingernails. It didn't match. James said he passed three separate polygraph tests administered by a nationally renowned former FBI polygrapher. After two years, Andy and the former NYPD commanding officer left the investigation. Andy said, I felt like I was spinning my wheels. Pat and I encouraged the authorities to pursue different avenues without much success. You can usually tell by the lack of feedback that they're not interested. It's very telling. In March 2001, Yale announced a $100,000 reward for any new information leading to a conviction. That brought the total reward to $150,000. In October 2001, it was announced the DNA under Suzanne's fingernails did not match James. However, authorities said suspects could not be ruled out just because DNA didn't match. James still remained the only named suspect. In April 2003, James wrote a piece for the Yale Daily News. He said, The outrageous insinuation that I had anything to do with this crime is criminal, cruel, and irresponsible. Nevertheless, Yale and the New Haven police refused to retract their label despite making no progress in the case and finding no reason to suspect me. Suzanne's case was turned over to Connecticut's cold case unit September 2006. New Haven State's attorney, Michael Darrington, assembled a team of retired Connecticut State Police detectives in June 2007, calling it the Joven Investigative Team. They were asked to conduct an independent investigation into Suzanne's murder and reevaluate all of the evidence and search for new leads. In July 2008, the team re-interviewed the witness who said she saw a man running close to the time Suzanne was murdered. No one had interviewed her since she had told police the runner wasn't James. The woman said the white man had blondish hair, chiseled features, and was wearing dark clothes and a loose-fitting green-colored jacket. The man was athletic-looking and 20 to 30 years old. A sketch was drawn up of this man, and it was distributed throughout the neighborhood and to Yale alumni groups. Two weeks later, it was revealed investigators had never tried to find out who Suzanne said she needed to retrieve the GRE materials from in the email she'd sent before she was murdered. The team said they hoped to track down whoever borrowed the materials. In a crushing blow to the investigation, it was discovered the fingernail scraping samples had been contaminated and the DNA actually belonged to a lab worker who originally worked the case. In December 2012, the New Haven Register reported authorities were investigating tips from several local residents. The tips pointed to the possibility the killer may have been a mentally disturbed Yale graduate student. The man's name was never released, and police never named him as a suspect officially. The newspaper article referred to him simply as Billy. Billy had actually died that same year in 2012. On the day he died, Billy had called an attorney and asked if he could draw up a will to transfer the title of his condo to his niece. The attorney asked Billy why someone so young wanted to draw up a will. Billy hesitated and then said, They're out to get me. They're closing in. That same day, shortly after 9 p.m., Billy was driving on I-95 when he hit a barrier. He then exited his car and started running in the left-hand lane. He jumped in front of an oncoming car and was pronounced dead at the scene. Authorities are quoted saying it's crystal clear it was a suicide. One of the tipsters lived one block from where Suzanne was found murdered. This tipster knew Billy and had tried to help him over the years. At one point, Billy said to this tipster, there is something I have to tell you. I'm obsessed with the murder of Suzanne Joven. Billy then said that shortly after Suzanne was murdered, his roommate was watching a news report on the case. 
The roommate said, they'll never catch me. Billy said that he had taken it as a joke in bad taste, but now he was sure the joke led police to trying to trap him into confessing to the crime. The tipsters gave police Billy's yearbook picture. They suggested comparing his picture to the sketch of the man seen running in the green jacket. See, the tipsters explained that Billy was a frequent runner and often wore a loose-fitting greenish jacket. The tipsters told police that a sample of Billy's blood was taken after he died, so police could test Billy's DNA against DNA found in Suzanne's case. When the New Haven Register asked Chief Police State Attorney Kevin Kane about Billy, he said, we have not made any connection that would warrant any action by us. The chief state attorney wouldn't discuss any specific things that had been done or not done. He also wouldn't say if they were still investigating Billy. In June 2013, James' civil lawsuits were settled. The city of New Haven paid him $200,000. Yale paid him an undisclosed amount. He eventually rebuilt his teaching career and is now married with two kids. Shortly after, the New Haven asked the then New Haven state's attorney if he no longer considered James a suspect. The answer was, I think that's fair to say. James told the New Haven Register, I feel it's simply wrong that the state has the power to destroy someone by branding them. That shouldn't be permitted legally. I know of no other municipality in America that does what New Haven and Yale did. First and foremost, it may have likely destroyed the investigation since it gave a false sense of progress. But it was also cruel, not only to the victim's family, but for the entire Yale community. In 2016, the Jobin investigative team broke up. By 2018, the chief state attorney was overseeing Suzanne's case through the state's cold case unit. The unit first focused on getting all investigative agencies' information together in one system so that they knew what they had. The chief state attorney said that they were reviewing every piece of evidence. They also resubmitted Suzanne's clothing for DNA testing. The FBI was also brought in for assistance. The key questions are still the same. Where was she intending to go when she walked through the Phelps Gate that night? How did she get to the corner of East Rock and Edge Hill some 20 minutes later? In December 2018, the New Haven Register reported that Andy and the former NYPD officer said Connecticut authorities botched the investigation from the start by focusing solely on James. Both investigators said that they came forward because they believed the case could still be solved if all the investigators who worked on it came together, shared information, and followed leads. Andy said Suzanne's case was plagued from the earliest days by investigators and prosecutors totally and wrongfully invested in only one theory, that James was a murderer. Andy adds to that sentiment, and I'm afraid that not much has changed in 20 years. Andy said focusing on James had two devastating effects. First, the damage to an innocent man's reputation. Second, the effect of shutting down of potential sources of tips and perhaps crucial information from the police's greatest source, the public. When people are fed a steady stream of reports that the police already know who committed the crime and will be making an arrest soon, they tend to think of their information as unimportant and probably wrong. Sadly, we'll never know how many such sources in the Joven case never came forward. Andy said he identified about half a dozen suspects, not including James, who should have been investigated. He said the other investigators didn't listen, and he believes they still consider James a suspect. Andy also says he discussed a wild theory with other investigators. Did terrorists kill Suzanne because her senior essay was on Osama bin Laden? Andy said the other investigators were universally disinterested in pursuing that theory. 
a friend of Suzanne's said that she told him a few weeks before her murder she was worried she didn't have enough research to finish her essay. This friend then suggested that Suzanne may have met with a source to write her paper, and that source is why Suzanne was killed. The former NYPD officer said, I never felt James had any motive to do anything as vicious as what happened to Suzanne Joven. I didn't feel there was any significant evidence pointing to him. Suzanne's parents traveled to New Haven from Germany in the autumn of 2018 to meet with investigators. The Joven said in an email, we appreciate the extraordinary persistence and dedication of authorities in New Haven and the state of Connecticut. Where it will lead is hard to say. For us personally, nothing has changed. Nothing will change. The Connecticut Division of Criminal Justice says Suzanne's case is currently handled by the Division of Criminal Justice Cold Case Unit. They continue to pursue leads. The Jobin investigative team also continues to spend their unpaid personal time investigating the case. According to the DOCJ, the team and the division are asking for a renewed commitment by the public to assist in solving the homicide of Suzanne Jobin. Do not assume that someone else has already provided the information. Even if you've already made a call in response to previous requests for information, you should call again so that the team may follow every possible lead. Suzanne's younger sister, Rebecca, who was in the middle of her freshman year at Stanford when her sister was murdered, said, I miss everything about Suzanne. When she left for college, I cried for weeks on end. I feel the same way now, but now I know the separation is permanent. I often think about the way in which Suzanne died and the questions I will never have answered. And that really traumatizes me. I cannot deal with that at all. I just have to let it pass when it comes to my mind. The state of Connecticut is still offering a $50,000 reward for info leading to the arrest and conviction of Suzanne's murderer. Yale University is still committed to an additional $100,000 reward as well. At the far back of Yale's lower courtyard is a memorial stone. The black slab lies between grass and flowers, near a hammock in which Davenport students often relax. Its simple inscription reads, Suzanne N. Joven, in loving memory, January 26, 1977 to December 4, 1998. If you have any information about Suzanne's murder, you can call the Cold Case Unit toll-free tip line at 1-866-623-8058 or send an email to joven.case at ct.gov. We'll also put that in the show notes. Be sure to follow us at The Murder Diaries Pod on all socials. That's it for this week. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.